this morning's uh, scripture text is Psalm 133. So if you have a Bible, and turn to Psalm 133 now. If you don't have a Bible, then you can find one on the rack in front of you. And Psalm 133 is on page 615 of that Bible. We're finishing this morning uh, a series that we've been in all summer. We've been looking at these, this section of Psalms in the, uh, in the Bible that are commonly referred to as Psalms of Ascent. So these were the songs that the people of Israel sang as they were on their way to Jerusalem to worship God there. And Psalm 134, though not techni- 133, though not technically the last of them, that's Psalm 134, and we heard that as our call to worship this morning. But, but Psalm 133, nonetheless, um, though not the last, is a very appropriate way to end our study in these psalms because it, it holds out in front of us an ideal, an ideal of what the Christian church ought to be, an ideal of unity. And so let's, let's read this together. It's pretty short, um, so listen carefully as I follow along. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, running down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Let's ask Him to bless our study of it this morning. God, we are grateful that You come to us and speak to us, that through Your Holy Spirit You have breathed life into us, and now open our eyes to be able to see the truths that You have contained in Your Word. And so, God, that's what we pray for this morning. We pray to have eyes to see. We pray that You would help us to focus and to and to listen, and to, and to put attention not on a speaker, me, but on you and what you want to say through this text. Lord, communicate to our hearts, and may Jesus get all of the glory. Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. So in, in 2002, the Reuters news agency reported about an incident of violence in the city of Jerusalem that left 11 people hospitalized, one person unconscious, and one person with a broken arm. Now, you might say, okay, an incident of violence in Jerusalem, that's not terribly extraordinary, is it? And uh, No, maybe not. Now, and, and then what if I told you, though, that the, the incident occurred at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the church that tradition holds is built on top of the tomb and therefore the site of the resurrection of Jesus himself. Now, even then, you might say, okay, incident of violence at a Christian holy site in a disputed part of the world in Jerusalem. That's not all that extraordinary either, is it? I mean, you probably, you might be tempted, you might not say it out loud, but you might be tempted to say it's probably those Muslims or something like that, right? You'd be completely wrong. The violence occurred actually among the Christians. The Christians, and there's six different branches of them, who occupy and control the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this is no new thing. In fact, for centuries, from the very founding of the church, who controls what within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has been hotly disputed. In fact, in 1752, that's right, 1752, the Ottoman Sultan had to step in and, and issue a decree that divided the church into six different sections so that they knew, okay, this is your territory, you stay here, and this is your territory, and you stay there. And so there's six different groups. The Latins, the Greeks, the Armenians, the Syrians, the Coptics, and the Ethiopians. And they all have their part. Now, but apparently the rooftop of the church has always been somewhat uncertain. 
And so it's been going back and forth over the years. And since 1970, a Coptic Christian monk and an Ethiopian Christian monk have both lived full-time on the roof of the church, just to kind of sort of stake their claim and make it clear that they aren't ceding to the other side control of the rooftop. Well, that's what kind of blew up in 2002 because it was a hot day in July, and the Coptic decided that he was going to move his chair into the shade, but the shade was occupied by the Ethiopian. And so words were exchanged, and it turned into shoves, and then all of a sudden you have an all-out brawl within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that, that left all these people hospitalized, chairs being thrown, iron bars, right, the Israeli police being called in. Right? Now, if it weren't so tragically sad, you'd be tempted to kind of laugh. Right? But it points out to us and reminds us that even in what you would think would be the most unifying of places, unity is extremely hard to come by. Now, now that we're all depressed, <laughs> let's, let's go back to Psalm 133, because Psalm 33 must have something to say to us in the midst of all this. Right? Psalm 133 speaks about something that we, that we desperately need. Now, and it's pretty easy to sort of outline, there's only three verses, so it's pretty easy to kind of outline the flow here of, of, of what David is doing in this psalm. And I had titles that kind of went along with the outline originally, and then I was reading um, Mark Futado, who's an Old Testament scholar, a Hebrew scholar, and I liked his titles much better than mine, so I'm not going to give you mine, I'm going to give you his. All right, this is what he says. In verse 1, you have the praise of unity. And then verse 2, in the first part of verse 3, you have two pictures of unity, and then in the last part of, of verse 3, you have the promise of ultimate unity. Okay, so praise, pictures, and promise. That's much better than what I would have come up with. Okay, so there you go. Let's run through it. Verse 1, you have the praise of unity. Now, this is basically the topic sentence. This is the sentence that sort of defines the main idea of everything that's going to be talked about here. And David, the writer of this psalm, is saying, look at verse 1, saying that it's good and pleasant for brothers to live together in unity. And on the face of it, it's like, okay, that kind of that makes sense. But as soon as we start to think about it, we start asking ourselves, right, what does that actually mean? Right, what does it mean to, to be in unity with, with someone? What does that mean? Because we can, if we aren't careful, we can misunderstand what actually is being talked about here. Because we throw around the, world, the word unity all the time today. So what is, what is David talking about? What is the Bible talking about? And I think this word brothers actually gives us some pretty helpful boundaries as to what that means. If you look at that word in the context of, of the, of the Old Testament, you get a pretty broad understanding of, okay, where do I draw the lines about what it means to live together in unity? Because David is saying that it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity, when they live together in unity. Now, on the one hand, when David says brothers, what he's saying to us is he, he's talking about fellow worshipers of the one true God. Right? This was a song that was sung by the Israelites on their way to Jerusalem where they were going to worship God together. So that's, that's important. Unity has to have some sort of, of, of basis, some sort of central grounding point. You can't be unified around nothing. And that principle holds in, in, in basically any, I mean, any, any school, any, um, any business, any kind of common, or any organization has to have some sort of common mission around which to unify. But if that's true in any sort of common organization, that it is most certainly true in its ultimate example, the, the example that David is talking about here, the unity of the people of God. And, and what would the community of Israel have to be united around? Where would real unity for the people of God be found? Well, they would have united around a common covenant promise that had been made to their forefather Abraham. 
and then transferred to Isaac, and then to Jacob, whose 12 sons would become the nation of Israel, a common promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. And they would be united around their common experience of rescue and redemption when they were taken out of the land of Egypt where they were enslaved and given freedom, that common experience of being freed from the bondage of slavery. And they would have been united around a common revelation of truth that had been given to them by Moses in the law of God, revealing the character of the God that they worship, their inability to meet the standards that he lays out, and, the, and the, the means by which, through sacrificial atonement, they are to get themselves back into the presence of God. All of those things would have united the people of God. That's what would have made them brothers. And the very same thing is the basis of the unity of the people of God today in the Christian church. We are united by a common covenant promise that has been made to us and fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. We have been united by a common experience of redemption when we, being brought out of the slavery of our sin, are given the freedom that is found in the forgiveness of those sins by Jesus Christ. And we are united by a common revelation of who that God is in the Holy Scriptures around which we can unify and say this is what we believe, this is who we are. That's what makes us brothers. And what that means then is that there are some non-negotiable beliefs that define what unity is. You can't have real unity without unification around those things. A common understanding of the covenant promise of God, a common understanding of what it means to be redeemed into the presence of that God, and a common understanding of the revelation of that God to us in the Bible. We unify around that. Now, it doesn't mean that with people who don't share that with us, we can't have civility. We should. We should have kindness, we should have respect, but not unity, not in the sense that's being talked about here. Unity, as it's talked about here, is not possible when you don't share a faith in these things. So that's one thing from this word unity that we get, from this word brothers, that we get to understand. That's what David is talking about. But on the other hand, the word brothers in the context of the Old Testament also tells us that there is an incredible diversity within this unity that is evident. That, that everyone within this, within this umbrella of the people of God, is not a, they're not exactly the same. And the book of Deuteronomy is extremely helpful in this. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, you have God laying out the law for his people and how they're to interact with each other as the, as the people of God. This is the Old Testament people of God and the nation of Israel. And there's certain rules and regulations about how they're to relate to each other. Now, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read a couple of places where this, this concept of, of brothers is used, and it gives us a picture of the diversity within the unity that's, that's found. For example, Deuteronomy 15, verse 3. It's talking about the cancellation of debts. Every seven years within the, within the community of Israel, debts that were owed to one another were to be canceled. Right? And, 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 and Moses is writing, through God speaking through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 15 and saying that happens every, every seven years, but that's not how you would treat a foreigner. This is how you are to treat brothers. This is what he says. You may require payment from a foreigner, which remember is perfectly fair. Like that's, that's the arrangement. Money is owed, money is paid back. It's not being unjust to the foreigner. It's just that's the way that the foreigner was treated. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt owed by your brother your brother. Then in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 15, it says, if there are any poor, if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. 
Then just a few verses later, in verse 12, it doesn't use the word brother, but it says this. It says, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, so that's the same thing. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. Now, one more, and this is perhaps the most stretching. From Deuteronomy 25, it's talking about the administration of justice, and it's laying out the rules for criminal cases where God says, okay, you're to have a judge, and the judge is to hear the case from both sides of the, of, of the, of the case, and he's to judge between, between guilt and innocence, and he makes that judgment, and then in the case of guilt, he is to prescribe a punishment. But when the judge does that, it says, Deuteronomy 25.3, it says, he, the judge, must not give him, meaning the guilty criminal, more than 40 lashes. If he is flogged more than that, then your brother will be degraded in your eyes. Okay, now, so what's that mean? Who's, who's your brother? Right? Do, 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 the creditor and the debtor, the rich and the poor, the, the, the master and the servant, the, the judge and the criminal. They're all brothers. They're very different, different circumstances in all kinds of cases, but they're, but they're united because they belong to the same community, the same common community where the worship of God is recognized in the revelation of God with a common experience of, of redemption. Now, and incidentally, just on the side, did you notice how each in, in each of those cases, it is the strong, the one in a position of power, who is given the responsibility to care for the weak, the one in a position of need. That's how we're saying. And that's what, that's what, that's what David is putting in front of us here. Right? This is the standard then for, for, for the people of God today, for Christians today. Different backgrounds, different jobs, different economic statuses, different bank accounts, all united by a common understanding of God's revelation and a common experience of God's redemption. That's unity. That's what we want. And David defines that for us, but he does more than just define it. He praises it. He says how good and pleasant it is. Now, some translations use the more literal behold. That's what you heard sung. Behold how good and pleasant it is. This is something we should look at because this, this is good. It's the same word that God, that, 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 that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when God's creating everything and it stops after God creates something and he says, and God saw that it was good. And then he creates something else and God saw that it was good. That's the kind of good. You look, it's some, this is the way that it's supposed to be. It's something according to its intended purpose. That's what good means. That's what David is saying this unity is. This is the way that it is supposed to be. So that's the first part, the praise of, of this unity. But what does that look like? Right? David wants us to do more than just kind of state how good it is. He wants us to, to feel it, to, to picture it. And so he, so he gives us, now he doesn't just praise it, he gives us two pictures of it. Two pictures of unity in verse 2 and the, and the first part of verse 3. Now, admittedly, in our culture, if someone asks you about something that is really, really good, and they ask you to describe it, you can, and, and, you know, something where you would step back and say, yeah, this is how it should be, you probably wouldn't use these images. Right? These probably aren't the first thing that kinda, things that kind of spring to your mind, oil flowing down your clothes and, and being covered with dew, but, but these meant something to the people of Israel. Right? Take the oil first in verse 2. This oil was, was precious, it says, precious oil. Right? And it's oil that was used to anoint Aaron, who would have been the high priest. So you go back to Exodus chapter 30, and there's actually a very detailed recipe for how this anointing oil was to be put together. It would have all kinds of fragrances and things kind of blended into it. It was like a holy perfume that was only, Exodus 30 is very clear to say, only to be used in the anointing of Aaron as the high priest and his descendants as the priests of God. 
So it was exclusive. It was exclusive and beautiful. And so what David is saying here is unity is like that. The unity that is so good, it's like this fragrant, sacred, special, anointing oil that just is, is so just generously poured out upon someone, that it flows down them. Right? That's what unity is. Unity is that good. It smells good. It makes us special. It makes us distinctive. It makes people look at us and say, wow, I want to be around that. Now, and then the dew. Now, the dew. Mount Hermon is, is, the, is the tallest mountain in, in, in Israel, in the, in the northern part of the country, snow-capped. Right? And Zion is really more of a hill where Jerusalem is in the southern part of the country. And so what you have is this incredible geographic diversity within, within Israel. And, and the concept of dew, except for the rainy season, the dew was what they depended upon to, to nourish the ground. The dew that would fall in the morning when the humidity is taken out of the air by the coolness and it, and it covers the ground. And that's what nourished the ground. So that's, what, so that's what David is saying here. He's saying that's what unity does and why it's so good. It's the extremes of God's people providing life-giving, sustaining nourishment to one another. Now, I, I don't know what, what, what image, you, like I said, these probably wouldn't be your images. If you were to step back and kind of say, all right, what would, I, what would be for me? What would be something that, if, that I would just say, that's the way that it should be? I, I, don't, I don't know what, what it would be for you, but whatever, whatever it is, do you see what David is trying to do? He's trying to say, it's like that. It's that good. It's something for us to, to desire and for something for us to, to celebrate. Now, but, but we're stuck with a serious problem. Because after you return from your happy place, right, wherever that is for you, your morning coffee in a book, your mountain cabin, your beach, whatever that is, whatever kind of that, like, yes, this is the way that it's supposed to be, whatever that is, you quickly come back to, you come back to reality and, you, and, and you're confronted with Christians fighting over who gets shade on the roof. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I need something else. So, so David praises unity and he shows us pictures of unity, but then he must, he, he kind of has to, he gives us a promise of ultimate unity. You get this in the second part of verse 3. For there, the Lord bestows his blessing. There, in the, in the unity of God's people, God is bestowing his blessing, even life forevermore. Right? See, in the unity of God's people, you are able to see God is putting something, he is bestowing something, and that is eternal life. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we manufacture. You want unity. That's where you have to look. Something given by God. The word actually here, the translations use the word commanded. The Lord commands his, commands his blessing, which sort of gives this idea of bestowing sort of a more strength. It's saying that this is, this is a decreed gift of God, eternal life, something that God does. Now, this is where we can have hope. Right? And this is hope that King David would have desperately needed. See, King David, there's some, there's some you know, discussion around when actually David would have written Psalm 133. It's not clear. Nobody knows for sure. And some people kind of speculate, well, it would have made sense, it would have been logical for David to have written the psalm after the kingdom was unified under him. So after the years where Saul was, the, the previous king was chasing him, and when there was dispute over the throne, and the, after, but after the army of Saul was, was gone and Saul had died and, and, the, and the kingdom was unified, that would have been a logical time, you know, it makes sense, for David to kind of sit back and say, now this is the way it should be. And he saw before him a unified Israel. 
And that would have made, that would have made perfect sense. And you would have been absolutely right. That is, that is what God designed. The people of God un- united. But you see, it wasn't very long. It didn't take very long for the people of, of Israel to not be united anymore. And David himself was actually one of the primary causes of that. I mean, it started with his own extramarital affair with Bathsheba, sort of, you know, an extramarital affair, sort of a, def- by definition, disunity. Right? And that led to a situation in David's own life where he wasn't able to deal with his sons appropriately. He felt so guilty about handling the, his own sexual conduct that he wasn't able to deal with, with problems with his sons when they had issues of, of, of how to deal with their sexuality. And that estranged him from one of his other sons, Absalom, and it ended up, this family thing ended up turning into a civil war where the whole country was fighting. And so you have someone who is praising unity, who desires unity, who knows exactly what unity is look, looks like, not only losing that unity, but himself being the cause of it. And see, we do the very same thing. I mean, we see the good. We see the ideal. We know the way that it's supposed to be. We want to praise it. We know how wonderful it is. We describe it. We get glimpses of it. And then it slips through our fingers. And not by accident, but because of our own actions or because of our inactions in different cases, destroys that unity. Now, then and only then, at that point and at only that point, can we fully understand and appreciate this fact that it's found in something that God gives by the eternal command of God. And it's not subject to our own ability or inability to to manufacture it. Now, for David and for the people of Israel, this was something they had to look forward to. This was a promise that they they had to believe. They had to trust in the future fulfillment of this. But for us, it's spread out on this table in front of us, right? Because this is where unity is is found. This is where the eternal life, the, the command the commanded decree of God is, is found. Now, Jesus said that in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54. Now, he wasn't specifically, you know, instituting the, the practice of the Lord's Supper at that point. He was doing it later, but he was giving us the concept that, that was underneath it. And he said to his disciples in John 6, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life eternal life, the bestowed gift of God, life forevermore, as Psalm 133 would say, right? That's what that God needed to, it has to come from God. The, the psalmist knew that generally, but it comes specifically from the body and, and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, not literally, of course, in, in, the, in the Lord's Supper that we take, it's not, it's not the literal partaking of the, of the bread and the juice that, that brings us eternal life, and Jesus wasn't talking about his, you know, the literal consumption of his body and blood, but he was talking about you need to be in me. You need to be connected to me. I am the only way that you will, that you will get that. See, our greatest problem is, in fact, disunity. But it's not, as we often suspect, disunity with one another. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. But that's not the main problem. That's not the root problem. The root problem is not our disunity with each other, as serious as that is. Our root problem is our disunity with God. See, and that's what the Bible calls sin. It's it's that ultimate disunity, that broken relationship that we have with the one who created everything and created it good because we look at him and we say, you know, I think I'd rather define good for myself. Thank you very much. And it's at that point, it's into that disunity that God comes down in the person of Jesus And he surrenders himself to die, gives his body and blood to voluntarily experience disunity 
so that we can be reunited with the Father. See, there is no more profound experience or example of disunity than what Jesus experienced on the cross. Right? In those moments, and it's impossible, that you can't completely understand the, the mystery of how this happened, but in those moments, Jesus experiences divine disunity. Right? An experience of disunity between God the Son and His Heavenly Father that was the equivalent of all of the eternal hells of everyone who would ultimately put their trust in Christ. Every one of the people of God experiencing the ultimate consequences of their disunity from God on our behalf. And he's the one, he's the only one who could have done that. See, King David couldn't have done it. He proved that he wasn't able to do it. We need a greater king than that. And Aaron, the one that's spoken about in the psalm here, the high priest, he's not able to do it. As special as the setting apart was and the anointing that, 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 that he received, it's not the oil flowing down the beard of Aaron onto his robes that enables it to happen. It's the blood flowing down the beard of Jesus onto the scarlet robe that was given to him in mockery by the Roman soldiers. That's, that's what gives us the eternal life in which we find our unity. Right? Unity first with God and through that then unity with each other. See, that's the gospel. And that is the most life-changing, most important news that the world can ever hear because in that you have the resources then to be able to, to, to deal with this unity with each other. Because if your ultimate disunity is, 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 is taken care of, right, if you've been forgiven of your rebellion against God, then certainly you're able to offer forgiveness to others. And if you've been forgiven by the God of the universe, then certainly you're able to go and ask for forgiveness when other people wrong you. Right? That's what the world is supposed to look at and say, wow, that smells good. Right? That's what Jesus is talking about in John, in John 17. We read it this morning. That's Jesus' is, is, is prayer. Is, not, I, want, I want people to be united. Why? So that people will look at them and they'll understand who I am because of it. Now, but sadly, while the church has the solution to this problem, right, what, what's the world left to think? Right? Because the church is fighting over who gets to sit in the shade. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, actually, and unfortunately, tragically, but it's a really good example of how this, of how this happens. Right? The fight I told you about in July of 2002, it's not an isolated incident. It happens, unfortunately. It happens regularly. The Israeli police are called in regularly to break up fights between these different sects of, of, of Christian ministers who, who occupy this, this church. Right? Get this. Sometime before 1852... Someone placed a ladder. Someone placed a ladder outside one of the windows on a ledge of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, sometime after that, it, it, it was disputed. It, it, nobody really could figure out who controlled the ledge. And so as a result, since 1852, that's like 160-plus years, right, there's been a ladder that hasn't been moved that sits outside of the window on a ledge because no one can agree as to whose responsibility it is to move the ladder. And everybody's afraid that if someone were to move the ladder, that the whole place would just erupt into a riot. Right? Now, it's sad, but that's, that's what happens. Right? No maintenance happens in the church because, because anything that's a common area, all six parties have to agree before anything gets done. And surprise, surprise, that never happens. So as a result, I mean, we, deacons in churches like ours, they think they have interesting discussions about maintenance, right? right? Nothing happened. Literally, literally, and this is where the sadness is, literally, 
The church that tradition holds is built on the very foundation of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is crumbling. See, and, and this is observed by people. The BBC, BBC News article, put it like this. It says, it is, in its own way, talking about the situation with this church, it is a poignant reminder of the declining strength of the Christian community in Jerusalem. While they fight among themselves at what for them is the holiest place in the world, their numbers have slumped. And it's just, just a secular news observation, right? But it's no wonder. I mean, there's nothing attractive about that, nothing that makes you say, like, I mean, you go for the curiosity of it, but you don't go to say, like, wow, I just want to be a part of this. This just smells good. I want to be, I want to be around that. No. No. Now, thankfully, we're all tempted to look at ourselves and say, well, at least we're not that bad. Right? Well, maybe, but we need to be careful. Right, because, because just imagine this. Right, have you noticed the ladder over there? Now, it's a ladder next to a window, but it's a different window. Now, several people in the first service and this service have come rightly because we've got great people here who care about the aesthetics of this place and the way that it looks. And they say, can I move the ladder? I said, no. <clears throat> now, and the, and the reason is I want you to kind of go through a mental exercise because some of you have probably been looking at the ladder and going like, man, what is that ladder doing there? It is really distracting. But I want you to kind of go through the, through the mental exercise because we all have ladders, right, when it, com- when it comes to church. And I want you to kind of, you think through and you see it and you say like, you know, I just can't get over that ladder over there. I, I mean, I don't know why it's there. I don't know who would have left it there. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of silly. In fact, that ladder is really ruining my ability to be able to worship today. If someone doesn't do something about that ladder, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm not sure I can worship in a place where people think about ladders like that. You know, I mean, maybe I should try to find a place where they put ladders in different places where they think about ladders like I do. Because then, when the ladder is finally removed, if that happens, if the ladder just gets out of the way, then finally I'll be able to focus on worship, serving other people, and telling my neighbor about Jesus. That's what needs to happen for those things to happen. The ladder needs to go. Now, don't get me wrong. Hear me what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. The ladder shouldn't be there. Next week it won't be. Right? And having a conversation about that is not a bad thing. You need to. Right? Someone should come up and say, hey, is that really the best place for a ladder? Let's talk about this. Because, like, but there's a way to have that conversation, and there's a way not to have that conversation. And there is a point at which, if our focus is so much on the ladder, we aren't looking at the right thing, which is right in front of us. See, we look at the ladder, and we don't look at this. And that's what happens. Now, if that doesn't apply to you, just ignore it. But if, except for those two people... Right? The rest of us need to listen and say, oh, what, what's my ladder? Right? What keeps me from that kind of unity, the kind of unity that David is describing in Psalm 133? Re- refreshing, attractive, precious unity with someone who otherwise might be different than I am but worships the very same Lord. Right? What makes it hard for you to be around other Christians? Because right? they vote for a different candidate? Right? Because they send their kids to a different kind of school? Because they eat different things than you do? Now think about that. We live in a world where where we divide ourselves so much, fracture ourselves so much around concepts of affinity about how attractive it would be, and it is, when we get together in community groups like we have here at the church, we get together in community groups and we meet a couple of times a month. We share life with, we serve each other, people that are different but, but who share a mutual passion for Jesus. And we love them and we, and we care for them and we spend time with them even though they voted for the other guy. Even though their kids eat non-free-range 
me, even though they root for the Dallas Cowboys. Like, all those things, we still love them. Now, those are petty things, but they're real things. They happen. They're petty, you might say, though. Well, what about, what about more serious kinds of things, issues where you've, been, where you've been wronged, where you've been sinned against, or where maybe you have wronged someone else? Those are much more serious, and they happen all the time. Right? Those aren't causes for disunity because that's what this is for. That's what the gospel is for. And in this case, I mean, the world can have mechanisms and you can go to programs and things to learn how to deal with petty disagreements and stuff. But when it comes to wrong, when it comes to sin, only the church has the solution for it because only the church has the gospel. And so there would be no better place, no more beautiful place to experience reconciliation than the place where that can actually really and truly occur. That's what should be happening in the church. Now, I, I told this story to the, uh, the men at the Sunday Breakfast Mission on Thursday night. I don't have time to go into it fully this morning. But, but back in 2005, a, a, a corrupt cop, corrupt white police officer in Benton Harbor, Michigan, framed a black man for possession and distribution of drugs. Right? Now, it, it's easy. In the world we live in, you kind of extrapolate this out. I'm not saying that all cops are like that. I'm not saying this is a universal situation. But this is the situation. This is what happened. Right? And, 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 if, and for no other reason than he just felt like that morning, like, I just want a drug arrest, and this is how I'm going to get it. So the man went to jail. Would have been nine years, but he was only in jail for four years because ultimately this, guy, this was a pattern for the police officer, and it caught up to him. And so it caught up to him, and he himself ended up going to, to jail as well. Now, it just so happens that for both of them, independently, through the process of these experiences, they were both coming to grips with who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them. Both of them, in their own lives, experiencing forgiveness and redemption in a real way with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. And it just so happens, then, that last year, in 2015, both of them, because of their connection with the church, found themselves working at a coffee shop in Benton Harbor, Michigan, together. The coffee shop that was started with the support of a, local, of, a, of a local Christian church and a local Christian pastor, and they both end up there working together at the same time. And, of course, they recognize each other. They know the, they know the situation. He had testified against him. But instead of running, what they did is use as the basis for their conversation with each other the conversation that they had already had with God. And the one went to the other and said, you wronged me. And the former police officer said to him, you're absolutely right, I did. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And the man said, I forgive you. Now, the reason why they're able to do that, and the only reason why you're able, he said, I've, the police officer said, I've got nothing else I can say. <laughs> Just forgive me. Now, the only reason why you can do that, why you can accept that and nothing else, is because you first have experienced forgiveness of a far greater sort. So, so what is it then to offer? I mean, it's not that it's, it's inconsequential, but in comparison to what God has forgiven you, of course I can offer forgiveness to you. Right? And the police officer is able to go and say, I've got nothing else I can offer you except a, except a request to forgive. Right? And the only reason why he's able to do that is because he himself has stood before a greater judge and he recognizes that his penalty has been forgiven. See, now I know you can look at that and you can say, well, that's really... That's really simple. That's kind of that's cute. All stories that you tell in, t in two minutes kind of tend to, tend to end up sounding like that. 
I mean, so it's much more complicated than that, and, it, and, it, and in some cases it is. It doesn't, always, it doesn't always work out like that, but it should. That's the ideal that David is holding out for us. That's what the gospel makes possible, and that's what we should seek. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you have purchased for us something that gives us something we can have no other way. Thank you, Lord, for the unity that is found in the gospel, unity that you purchased because you died for us. Lord, let that be the foundation for how we come to this table this morning. Let that be the foundation for how we live our lives. Let that be what the world sees when it looks at us. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So take your hymnal and turn to hymn 359. We're going to sing the first three verses of Blessed Be the